All right, Romans 18, part 18, not Romans 18. Um, so on your outline, we're going to be in um, B, right? <laughs> 2, B, 1. Good? <laughs> All right, so 2, B, 1, yes. Um, so this is the new relationship, right? So the first two, two chapters or one through four, actually, Paul dealt with the law of Moses, right? And showed that no one was ever justified by means of the law, right? Because um, justification, being made or declared righteous by God, only comes by grace, and that's faith in the provision that God has set forth, and that's through Jesus Christ. So we're saved. Paul now is going to answer how you got saved, but now what? Now, now what do you do in your everyday life, Right? Is sanctification, this process of becoming more like Christ, how do you achieve that? How do you live up to your declared righteousness? And so the term that would be used is sanctification. But how do you do that? Do you do that by following the law, right? When I, when I say the law, I do mean the Mosaic law, because that was sort of what was thought. Because um, even in church history, even after, well after Christ was resurrected, that was... The idea, you know, not 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 all church history, but certain church history has the idea that um, you should follow the law after you've been saved. Yes, Christ did justify you, but in order to maintain righteousness, you should follow the law, and that would actually make you more righteous, more like Him. But we're going to see in Romans seven that that's um, not going to happen. You're actually going to fail. In your sanctification process if you try to follow the law because um, the ju the believer is not justified nor sanctified by the law and we're going to see that they're also not going to be glorified because of the law right the law does not produce in you good works the law just exposes you for who you are which is a sinner right for all of us um, the law is literally a flashlight to show you that you are a sinful person and so it should ultimately point you to the idea that you need help you need christ you need a redeemer you need salvation you need sanctification you need all those things and it only comes by god giving it to you and that's what paul's going to be um, detailing and, and deliberating on so the main topic of chapter seven is our freedom from the law and our relationship with Christ, our new relationship with Christ. And we're going to see that early on, we talked about a little bit last week, that he's going to use an illustration, and it's the illustration of the law of marriage or the law of the husband. We went over a little bit last week, but we'll repeat it because it's worth repeating to get that understanding. So... Um, Paul is using this law of marriage because all people generally understand that, not just Jews, but all he applies for this law of marriage um, to, to some, something that they would understand, how you're released from the law when that person dies. In the same way, you're going to be re you're released from the law because you died with Christ because of your union with Christ. So he's going to build on this statement in verses 14 of chapter 6. Because it says, uh, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. 
Um, so he's going to build sort of on that premise, and he's going to use an illustration of marriage to, to illustrate to us how you are no longer under the law, but under grace, because your old self died, right? Um, so just to understand that little illustration, we need to understand that the term man means mankind. The term law, without the definite article, meaning the law is the Mosaic law, and law is the general principle of law that he talked about in chapter 1, where we have this law written on our hearts, whether you're a Jew or not a Jew, right? A Jew has both the principle of law and the Mosaic law that weighs on him. Um, the wife that is mentioned in the passage stands as a representative of the believer. Um, and then the first husband, husband can be taken in two ways. It's going to be either a representative of law, the law, or law to, together, or as a representative of the sin nature. The second husband will be kind of mentioned, refers to Christ redeeming you from that law. So read verse 1, if you would, somebody. 7-1. Since I am speaking to those who understand law, brothers, are you unaware that the law has authority over someone as long as he lives? Okay, so it's, it's a sort of an obvious statement, right? Law is only going to be have authority over you when you're alive. When you die, there's no jurisdiction, no authority, no nothing to hold you to that. Um, so it's only authorities while someone is alive, right? So it's true for any code of law, so whether it's the Mosaic law or, or the, the, the principle of law. And obviously the readers of this letter, Romans, would understand that perspective, right? Um, it only, the worst thing of the, that the law, that our law has, would be execution, right? Capital punishment. If you killed another person in, in, cold-blooded murder or pre premeditated murder, our law generally says that we're going to take your life, right? That's, that's, the, that's the worst uh, punishment of any law is execution. But once that person is executed, then there's no longer any authority of law over that person, right? Which lends itself to understand that there's something beyond death, right? That death, death won't... Death isn't the end of you, right? It's kind of leading you to think that way. So with that basic principle in mind that no law is on you after you've died, Paul then gives this illustration. So read verse 2, if you would. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Okay, so... Here we have the, the law of Moses imparted, but Paul's actually uh, making it larger than the law of Moses. Um, so under the law of Moses, there was no way for a wife or a woman to divorce her husband. It was only possible if the husband initiated that process, and that's, that's in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, if you want to read it. Um, it still remains today under Orthodox Jewish law and in Israeli law is the same idea. So again, Paul's using this il illustration for the point that he was making that you are no longer dead to sin, or you're no longer alive to sin, you're dead to sin, right? The law is binding only on a person as long as he lives, and sin has no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. So he's going to point out that that understanding of the law of marriage, 
applies to you in, the, in this setting, in this way. Um, so the, the illustration is that a woman could only be freed or released from the control of law, the confines of law, or the agreement of the law of marriage was by the death of her husband. Once the husband of her husband died, she was released from that contract, released from that law, and she could then go and remarry or go and do what, what, what was in her interest in that way without being a adulteress, an adulteress, right? Um, but he's saying that if you're still, if he was still alive, then she would be an adulteress. And so Paul is making this argument, this saying, you understand the concept of death to law, right? Death to a contract, de death to um, a, an authority over you. It's the same when you're saved. When you are justified, you, you have died to that law that was over you, right? You are released from that law which held you to that contract. You're no longer a slave to that contract, right? Um, so um, death only can release one from the control of the sin nature. Well, we're obviously still alive physically, but there's more to physical, there's more to life than physical. Right? We can clearly understand that now because we've been born again. We have this spiritual life that we were dead and now we have a physical life and a spiritual life. Well, we, were, we died to our sin nature and as a result of our death to our sin nature, we are released from our sin nature. Right, And we are released from it by our union with Christ. Our union with Christ, you're, you're really either one or the other. You're not in between. You're not neutral. You're not you know, in, in something else. You're either in your sin nature or you're not in your sin nature. The only way to get out of your sin nature is to die by identifying with Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection, right? Okay, so then the implication is in verse 3. Someone read verse 3. So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. Okay, so he's reiterating the death of the death of the man was only the death of the man was the wife freed from the original marriage contract. If she remarried while he was still alive, by law she was guilty of adultery. But if he was dead, she was not. Right? It's really that. If he was dead, it was, it's really like that. The law says, if he's still alive, you're guilty of adultery. If he's not alive and he's dead, you're not. It's really that, that sort of clear, right? Not to say that she killed him, but, you know. <laughs> um, okay, so upon the death of her first husband, she was free to be joined to another man and enjoy a brand new life, but it wasn't until the death, right? So we've had that conversation before. What you know, there's responsibility by the man if he's still alive and he divorces his wife. He has a responsibility to still provide for her, right? He could. It's it's it is interesting enough from from a perspective of our culture um, how the man could just initiate divorce and then he could remarry and she could not. But he had a responsibility to her to provide for her first wife if he divorced her. Okay, then four through six. Uh, give an application now um, and it was what was true for the wife under the Mosaic law is now true for you as a believer not that you're an adulterer but that you have been dead to the 
contract of sin on your life, the authority of sin in your life, right? So um, if you would read verse um, 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit for God. So we see that term likewise, right? Likewise is just bringing that other context into this context. So the believer's death to either the law or the sin nature has made him alive with Christ. That's, that's the illustration. And then Paul is going to explain how and why this death occurred. Um, we saw that in chapter 6, right? It, um, chapter 6 taught us that we have been, we died with Christ when he died. We were buried with Christ and he was crucified and we were raised with Christ. Because of our union with Christ, that's how we, and he accomplished and overcame the sting of death. Um, we have died. The law has no authority over us because it, we have fulfilled the end of the law, which is death to it, right? Um, so we are joined together with Christ. Our union with Christ is what is the how and, and, and the way that that death occurred. So we now can live a life of faithfulness, right, that brings forth fruit to God. Only the fruit that is in the new life is, is good. All the other fruit before you were saved is useless or bad or not. You know, you still might have done, like I said, we still might have done good deeds, good work, but in the eyes of God, they were done from a sinful nature, right, from a sinful heart. And so they're not good. So you, you now that it might even be that you do the exact same deeds that you did before you were saved, but one is good in the eyes of God and one was nothing in the eye, meaningless in the eyes of God, right? Are we, do we understand that? Okay, so Paul is contrasting that believers that try to put themselves under the law for the purpose of sanctification or the purpose of good works, um, the sin nature is going to win. Paul is saying that if you do that, you're not going to succeed. You're not going to be sanctified. You're not going to produce good works because it's done under the works of the law rather than the works of faith, right? Rather than the works of, of God's grace in your life. And he says that in verse 5 because he tells us another purpose of the law. Um, it was never to justify or sanctify anyone. So read verse 5 if you would. For while we were living in the flesh... Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Um, go, if you look back to chapter 5, verse 20. Look, go back to chapter 5, verse 20. What, that, what was one purpose of the law? That tells us one purpose of the law. So I'm going to read verse 520. The law, I'm sorry, go, go ahead. The law came along to multiply the trespass, to where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. All right, so we see the Mosaic law was to cause sin to increase. Remember, it just shines a light on it. And once you become aware of that, you have this nature to, like, do that, right? When, when it says, don't do this. Your nature says, oh, I'm going to do that. You know, when it says, do, don't do this, you say, well, I'm going to do this and vice versa. And so um, he's now adding that the law will produce sinful passion. So it will increase, right? Our sinful passions are aroused by the law. 
They were at work in our members to prefer, it bears fruit, right? But it's fruit to death. The wages of sin is death. That's the fruit that you're bearing. So you were bearing fruit under the law, but it was to death. And that, so he's adding that not only was it, was it to increase sin, and so that you become aware of it, but now he's saying that it will produce even sinful passions in you. It'll arouse in you to do more. And we used a silly illustration before. When a sign says, don't walk on the grass, you're like, well, why not? You know, what's, what's wrong with that grass? So you start testing out the grass to see you know, whatever you might do, right? So the law operates on a performance basis. If you try to gain justification, sanctification by means of following the law, you'll be operating on a performance basis, right? Yet faith is what pleases God, right? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So operating on a performance basis, well, I'm good because I did this. And that was Christ's charge to the Pharisees, right? He, he always charged them and says, you brought a vipers. You think you do good by doing this, but you do nothing. You're white, whitewashed sepulchers, right? In the sense that they thought themselves to be very righteous people. And they would wear all the garments and they would pray out in open square and they would have this respect of man and all these things. And Christ says, I know you. You know, you, you live in this self-righteousness that you have. And Christians can do the same thing too, right? We, when, you, when you give, you tithe or you paint the church or you do whatever it is that you might do, you can get a sense of self-righteousness because you do good things and you realize none of that is done in faith. It's all done for you. Fine, great, but it's, you're getting the reward right then, right there. It's not building a reward for you in the future, right? So we have to guard our hearts, our minds too. Um, okay, so verse 6, back to Romans 7, verse 6 explains those that who operate on the basis of grace can produce the fruits of sanctification. So in contrast to operating on performance based of doing works of the law, grace produces fruits of sanctification, of good fruit. So read verse 6, if you would, of chapter 7. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay, so just like the woman was released from the law after her husband died, we are now released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code, right? So in, in contrast of our position prior, where we all of our fruit bearing led to death, um, Paul is reminding us of our new position, right? That we are released from the law. Um, the law has no authority over us. We die to that which enslaved us. Um, therefore, we can have a brand new life in the Spirit. So we see the, the illustration of the marriage law, the, the law of marriage, and this illustration now for our new position. Are we following that generally? It's pretty pretty clear when you, when you look at it that way, right? Um, so instead of experiencing the oldness of the letter, which was the law, we now experience the newness of the Spirit. So I just want to make it clear that only Jews were under the Mosaic Law, right? Not Gentiles were not under the Mosaic Law. Um, it never applied to Gentiles, and it doesn't apply to Gentiles today. Um, um, it's actually the Messianic Jews who were freed from the law, right? The Mosaic law, uh, the obligation to obey the law. But remember, when we went over Galatians and many other, other parts, 
they were always Judaizing converts, right? Trying to say, yes, you're saved, but you've got to do this now. You've got to be converted to Judaism. You've got to get circumcised. You've got to follow all these things, right? There, that was a big struggle. And even, like I said, even to this day, there are, there are Christian, I don't know if they're denominations or I'd say they're more cults, that force their congregation to follow the law, right? Seventh-day Adventist is one of those. Um, even Jehovah's Witness do that, or they, they pick and choose parts of the, the law to say, yes, you must do these things, right? Um, and they are living, operating on a performance basis and not on a faith basis. And when you operate on a performance basis, you actually take cross, you take Christ from the cross and you, you, you share in the, the sufficiency of it. So his sufficiency only goes so far, but you got to meet him halfway in a sense, right? Well, that completely shatters his position of what he did. You're reducing the work of Christ by adding to his work, right? See, yes, Catholics ma'am. too. Catholics, for, yes, Catholics for sure. They do, they do. And so, and I, you know, I, I would go on to say that they add more, right? They add way more than 613 laws, right? Okay. Good. Do we have any... Questions, thoughts, ideas, anything? <laughs> Good? Okay, so we'll move on. The sin and the law. Um, so we saw how he gave an illustration. It's based upon both human concepts and the law of Moses. So now he's going to develop like a theological principle. Um, so showing that all believers are to submit to the law of Christ. So there is a law the law of Christ. And I would even say that in the New Testament, this law of Christ, nine out of the 10 commandments are repeated in this, this law of Christ idea. Um, only one is not repeated. I think we said it before. Does anybody remember that? The Sabbath, right? The Sabbath. Um, and so that's the only one that's sort of not repeated to as a commandment in a sense to follow. So there is a law of Christ and we're not usually familiar with that idea. So we're going to now discuss, or Paul's going to now discuss the relationship between sin and the law. So if we're dead to the sin nature, as chapter 6 taught us, right? And we're dead to the law, as chapter 7 just showed us, um, 1 through 6 just showed us, um, should we think that there's something with the law, right? Mosaic law, right? Or, or any law, really. Um, if, if we're dead to it and it, it, we don't have a sin nature, really, again, what's the purpose of the law? It was bad, right? It doesn't do anything good. Um, and he's going to answer that question uh, and he's going to explain the problem that it's not with the law, it's actually with you, right? The people, that's the problem. Um, so we're going to see there's four purposes of the Mosaic Law in this little section. So first, the law was to show what sin is, right? It shines a light. Um, and actually then, once you know about that law, it makes you want to sin more, right? It, produce, it arouses in you this pursuit of sinful passions. Um, it's going to, we're going to also see, it's going to reveal that no one could ever keep the law well enough to be acceptable to God, no matter if you were the the highest respected Pharisee of the law, it was never good enough, right? 
isn't that what Christ said? It says you have to be better than the Pharisees. You have to be more than the Pharisees if you want to be accepted, right? Um, and then finally, we're going to see its ultimately goal. Its ultimate goal is to drive you to faith in the provision that God gave, right? They're not the only purposes of the law, but these four pertain to this section. This section is chapter seven, verse seven, to chapter eight, verse four. So we're going to see that the question is. Is the law sinful if it does all these things? If if the sin is if the law is making you sin, and if the law is exposing sin, and the law is letting you know of sin, is the law itself bad and sinful? Right. So someone read verse seven and eight, if you would. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Um, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Okay, so it, it's a logical conclusion based upon what we learned so far that the law just does terrible things basically to us, right? It exposes this, exposes what sin is. It makes you sin more. It doesn't do just, it doesn't justify you, doesn't sanctify you. What then shall we say? Is the law sin? And what is Paul's response? By no means, by no means right? Certainly not. And again, that's the same. He's been saying that a few times now, by no means, God forbid, right? It's like the strongest refutation of that clause of that that thought bless you um, so he now gives again another purpose of the law to show what sin is right he was not claiming he was sinless without the law right we're not that's something that we have to understand the law does not the, the law does not um, you're not sinless until you become aware of the law. All the law does is just let you know that you are a sinner, already a sinner. So when I say you shine a light on something, it's like you open the door and there's roaches everywhere. The roaches were still there whether you opened the door or not, right? Whether you turned on the light and saw them, it doesn't matter because they were still there. It's the same idea that you're still sinful whether you were aware of the law or not aware of the law. All the law does is just let you know you're aware of it and here's, let me, here's the proof of it basically, right? So from that perspective, we can see that the law is good. Because what is the law going to lead you to? Repentance. It should lead you to repentance, right? Because your life is leading you to death. All the law does is expose, hey, you're going to die in death, in sin. So let me tell you how. The problem is the law is powerless to do anything about it, right? All it does is just expose it to you. So that's that's his rebuttal is that no, the law is is very good. It's good, right? Um, <clears throat> so what he says, um, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Again, he's not saying I was sinless. It's just now he became aware that he was a coveter, right? He didn't know that it was described as such, but he is one who covets because the law didn't teach him that, it, it, it just exposed that. He was already coveting. The law just says, this is wrong, right? And he, he don't covet, right? 
But verse, but verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me even more covetousness, right? All kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. So he's saying that um, he had not understood the sinfulness of coveting, right, until he read the law of Moses, which said, you shall not covet, right? So all of a sudden he became aware uh, that this lusting for something that he did not have was sin, right? But that, that lusting of, was that sinful lusting already condemned him. He was already condemned because he was already doing those things. All the law did is say, yeah, that's a sin, right? So we see how the law is very good, right? Because it, it allows you to see where your true position is and then do something about it, basically, right? Or not. Or not, or yeah. right, that's exactly right. Um, Okay, verses 9 through 11, they, they describe another purpose of the law, and that's to increase sin. Um, I have to admit, he's going to say a confusing statement um, that I don't really fully understand, but I'll give you what I think makes sense, but just know that. Because um, he says he was alive apart from the Mosaic law. So read verse 9, if you would, somebody. Uh, I'm sorry, you can read through 9 through 11. Okay. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, seized me, and through it killed me. Okay, so the, the difficult or confusing part is to answer when was he alive apart from the law, right? Knowing Paul's life, he was born into Judaism, raised under Judaism, um, so some, so I don't know exactly what that means. So I'm going to kind of give you just a basic idea, and then what the one that makes sense to me, but I, it could be wrong too. So some would interpret this verse as describing uh, Paul's condition when he was a practicing Jew, right? Um, but as an unsaved Jew, he was under the Mosaic law. So I don't know how that would really work, but that's what some people say. Um, so one possibility is this idea that there was a time when he was free from the law. Can anybody think about that possible time? So that's what a view would say, right? Before you become age of accountability in a sense. But when, when Paul was saved, Right, when, Paul, when Paul had the Damascus Road experience, right, he shed his Judaism. He was, remember how long it was? Three days, right? He was blinded and he couldn't see for three days. So an interesting possibility, and again, this is just a possibility. So one view is that, the, the idea that before you're accountable, you were alive, right? And then once you became accountable, you became aware because you could now understand what the law says about sin. And that's a, that's a plausible thing. Um, but he was always sort of under the law is kind of what's hard to understand. Um, but he was free from both the law and sin, and that was the moment of his salvation, right? The moment of his salvation, he was justified and sanctified, right? He had a spirit-filled life apart from the law for three days, basically. Um, 
However, like many Messianic Jews do, they then say, oh, how do I keep this in a sense? How do I keep this, this freedom, this I'm alive, do I go back into following the law, right? So the, the, the premise is that, that for three days he was free, right? And then he started thinking, oh, I gotta live this way. How do I live this way? He puts himself back under the law. That, does that make sense? I don't know, but I thought that's, a, that's an interesting thing in the context because we do the same, right? We, we want to we live in a performance-based thing so we can measure our, our progress, right? We can pat ourselves on the back, say, I've come this far, or whatever. Um, so that conclusion that he made, or possibly made, it led to a spiritual struggle, right? Because um, he says right there, right? I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died, right? So he died to the sin nature, rose again, in, so to speak, in being alive, and then he became aware of the sin of the law, and so he goes back to death, in a sense, right? The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, verse 10. And then 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me, right? So the idea is that he had a conclusion, he was saved, but he wanted to maintain that holiness, that righteousness with the Lord, so he puts himself back under the law, but in a new light. Um, but it led to a spiritual struggle, right? And that was, the early church struggled quite a bit with that. What do we do with Gentiles? What do we do with them? Do we put them under the law and the whole Jerusalem council was that discussion. Remember, remember that in the book of Acts chapter 15, right? And whose side did the council come on? It was Peter and Paul, basically, right? Peter, James, and John, and then Paul. And it was, they were basically saying, we need to put Jew or Gentiles under the Jewish control. And Paul says, why would we do that? None of us could do it before. Why well, put a yoke on them that we couldn't even handle? They don't even have the history or the background or the tradition of Judaism, why would he put Gentiles, a yoke on them that they can't do, by grace alone, right? And, that, and so the council ultimately then wrote this letter and it passed around to all the churches saying, we're not going to put the yoke of Judaism on you. It's the gospel that Paul has been teaching is the gospel. It is the true one. The only thing we ask of you is just remember us and help, help us, the Jerusalem church, right? Because they were being persecuted. Um, so back to Paul, he knew he was dead to it as far as justification was concerned, but he wanted to continue the sanctification and he thought by doing the law, he would be continuing in that. Are we, are we kind of following that train of thought there? Um, he thought that through God's spirit who was living in him since the moment of salvation, um, he would now be able to keep the commands of the law, right? So an idea crept in his mind that I'm saved, now I have the power of the Holy Spirit to do what? To follow the law perfectly. That was an idea that he had, right? But he says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So he has this internal spiritual struggle because he was saved. He thought the Holy Spirit that was within him is going to make him act more righteously because, according to the law. But instead, it seized an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and killed me. Are we kind of following that train of thought there? And that's what we've, that's why he's saying this, is we've got to go through this, right? So he's saying it was a mistake to believe that, 
and not long before he noticed that it was failing, right? He stood accused and found himself basically dead in sin again because he didn't fully understand the concept of justification or sanctification yet. You know, he was being taught as well because um, the sin had been revived in him and he allowed a sin nature to regain control of him, right? Um, so sin existed before the law, but apart from the law, the sin nature is dead. With the law, now the sin nature has a, a base of operation, or it has a, a means by which it can carry out its legal authority, right? It has a legal authority of you. It gives the, it, it, will, it will cause you to sin if you give it the opportunity, right? So verse 10, like I said, the law proved that Paul could not attain sanctification by the law, right? The very commandment that promised life proved, proved to be death to me. Um, <clears throat> and that's, that's according to a Leviticus 18.5, um, because the commandment was to be unto life, right? 18.5, Leviticus 18.5 says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules, if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. That's what Leviticus 18.5. Um, so, but he finds himself dying because even with what he thought the Holy Spirit helping him keep the law, he still couldn't keep the law, right? And that, that was the struggle that he had within him. Therefore, that was a deceptive. Sin proved to be deceptive to him. Because uh, verse 11, again, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. That sin nature took the opportunity to give in through the law and deceived him. And then it created or, or pro, um, produced in him an arousal for more sin, right? And he's like, I didn't realize that that coveting is now even more coveting, right? So ultimately, he comes to the conclusion that the sin nature killed him because he could not keep the law. Um, he also makes a point like this in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 56. It says that um, he, the sin nature uses the law as a base of operation to make one sin even more. And the, the, the verse is this, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Without the law, the sin nature has no power. Do we, do we see that? The law gives power to the sin nature. It gives it the authority. It's like when you're, if there's no law, no speed limit law, and then, you know, someone pulls you over and they say, well, why are you pulling me over? He said, well, because you're going 125. He says, yeah, but there's no law that says I can't, right? Then there's no power on it. Only when the law says, well, you can only go 45 here, is there power in it, right? Right? Um, Okay, so the internal struggle of the believer, of us, um, because the sin nature responds to law, right? We respond to law in rebellion. Um, that's our sin nature. Like I said, if, you, if it says you shall not, you're going to say, well, I shall. And if it says you shall, you're going to say, I shall not, right? Um, okay, are we good with that, more or less? Um, Okay, so quickly, the third purpose of the law is going to be described in the next several verses, 12 through 25. Um, another purpose of the law was to reveal that no one could ever keep it well enough to become acceptable to God. So the problem is not the law. So 
after understanding this idea about the law, Paul says what? Read verse 12, if you would. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So I'll ask you, why? how is the law holy, and how is the commandment holy, and righteous, and good? Okay. <laughs> That's true. Okay. But what what how is it holy? If if all it does to us is make us do bad things, how is it holy? It, it's from God. It's from God. God is holy. God is holy, okay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it is. What does it do for you? What, according to Paul, he says, I didn't know what covetousness until the law yeah. told me, right? And so what does it do for you? It's showing you that you're not holy. It's showing you that you're, exactly. And you need help. So that's good, yeah, right? That's good, yeah. It's like, it's, it, it's finally saying, you're, you're, it's letting you know that you're under wrath. You're in this condemnation under wrath. If you didn't know that, you'd just go about your life and die and be, you know, under condemnation. Yeah, a so, lot of people think. Right. That don't read the Bible think they're good. They're good. They're, I'm no, there's no sin in my life. I'm good. Self-righteousness, right? And and they, they, what do they compare themselves to? Everybody, other, their neighbors. Everybody else, yeah. right? We all compare ourselves to each other, and we're like, I'm better than that guy. Look at his lawn. You know? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I mean, it is really something stup stupid like that. You know, I don't leave my trash can out on Wednesday night, so look what he does, you know? Or whatever. It's, it's the silliest things that we do. So... The conclusion is the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good because it reveals sin. You wouldn't know your position without it. Right. So we look at it going, thank the Lord you gave it to us. So we recognize who we really are, right. how, bad. how bad we really are. And that's, that's what you, you need. And you see how it's just ultimately going to point you to say, holy cow, I need I don't know if holy cow is right. <laughs> I need a savior, right? I need to have, I need something because it's not doing any good, right? The commandments were righteous because they condemn sin where it belongs. Sin leads to death. That's where you're going, right? right? You're going there. The law was good because its basic aim was to give you life. It's to give you life. Like, Silly, another silly illustration. You have a baby, you have a child who's one or two years old, and you live on a street, and you tell your kid, the kid at one or two wants to do whatever he feels like doing. He's like, I want to go over there. I'm going to go pet the dog over there. And there's a street, right? And, and he, in his mind, says, I want to do whatever I want to do because that's what I want to do, right? And as a parent, you say, you shall not cross that line because you will surely die, right? Get hit by a car or whatever. And your goal, you're not saying, you know, I want to make your life miserable because I don't want you to cross that line. I want life for you so you don't die crossing the street. I'm giving you wisdom, understanding of what life is so you don't die crossing the street. It's the same basic idea that the law is letting you know, don't cross the street because you're going to die, right? A thing's going to come and get you. So the law is there to give you life, just like a parent is there to protect you and guide you and make sure that you have a fulfilling life it's the same type of thing it's there to teach you that if you do those things you're probably gonna you're gonna probably die right so okay you better end there if they're going in we're good <laughs> father god we 
we're thankful, we're grateful, we love you, we praise you, we, we give you all the glory and honor because you give us your holiness, you reveal to us our own sin, you reveal to us our position, our where we were under your condemnation, under your justified and holy and righteous condemnation. And yet you made it possible for us to be in fellowship with you, and that's through the death and burial and resurrection of your son, so that he paid the price of sin, which was death, and that we identified with him in death, in burial, in resurrection, and we're just very thankful that we have that opportunity and that you are sanctifying us. Lord, teach us to teach us to understand that you're sanctifying us and that we just need to get out of the way. We praise you, we worship you, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.